0: Hi, I'm BJ, and this is the Arcane Alienist Podcast. Alright, um, I'm going to take some calls uh, based on uh, the last couple of episode, uh, episodes I've done, um, and then I've got an unboxing uh, and that's what I've got for this episode. So let's start with the calls.
1: Hey, BJ, again, always enjoy your recaps. I do want to clarify something that I thought was kind of cool. I mean, I do roll on the table. Uh, I think the only thing I rolled accidentally whispered was the hag's um, attempted spell check, uh, but you dis- t- totally destroyed it with your roll on the counterspell. She had rolled an 18. And you had rolled uh, much higher than that. And then, um, and I kind of like the counter spell, it could have been kind of cool, but of course it was erased once Idris cast the Rainbow of Death and blew everything out of the first floor of the castle, or all the enemies at least. Except for the, the giant troll, which which I rolled a 20 and it saved automatically, which was kind of funny. But um, hopefully it becomes an ally, or maybe it'll be a thorn in the side, a notch on the, the Moonblade, uh, or what have you. Uh, I got more. I got more. Yeah, the the fight with with the cloaker was really cool. It definitely triggered some nostalgia. I remember um, the module that where it was these things were introduced, and then the of course reprinted in the Monster Manual too. Very dangerous creatures, and and um, definitely the the authors or the designers of the Forgotten Realms doubled down on cloakers, and there are like cloaker cities in the Underdark, which is kind of bad. I would not want to go by there. You'd be uh, a babbling, a babbling maniac with all that moaning that these cloakers can do. Anyway, the cloaker fight was really cool to me. I thought um, that, so when, after Idris had actually knocked it, you know, made it leave or, or release him from the fire, something else happened. There were a couple rounds there, so I guess I got another one. And I, I'm just wanting to highlight this because to me it shows the beauty of the D20 opposed roll mechanic. Um, so it just was trying to fly away from him. The goal was to get a potion into Otto the Dwarf who was dying. Um, and the creature said, well, if you're going to fly that way, I'm going to fly back at you and try to engulf you. Because that's what the creature is wont to do. It actually nibbles on him once, but doesn't take him down. And then Idris is trying to struggle to get out. I, you try, your character, Burnfree, tried to turn it and did not spend enough luck because, I, like I said, I roll on the table and I tied you on the saving throw since it's got a pretty strong will, these cloaker things. And then, um, but then, like, so this cloaker is like a plus five strength roll and Idris has like a minus one to his strength roll. But then we roll a post strength to see if Idris can get out. And he succeeds. And that was last ditch because had he not succeeded to get out, then Otto the Dwarf would have perished for sure because then he was able to escape, fly over, and pour that potion into Otto's gullet. Um, And then the harassment with the stinking cloud worked incredibly well. The choking slash stinking cloud. um, And it wanted to get away, but you guys cut it down because... Uh, a vengeful cloaker could be a dangerous cloaker i agree but uh, i thought it was really fun it was really you know i think a lot the players had to think on their feet because of the adversity that was struck i mean this creature could emit its sonic attacks that caused a whole host of stuff um and they're really dangerous it's a good thing there was only one Hey, your ghosts of Salt Marsh recap reminds me of this ongoing discussion that people have been having about how paladins are OP. Man, your paladin is so OP killing a creature with two shots, oh my gosh. <sighs> if I were that GM I'd just rage quit right there. Actually I'm just kidding. I don't care. I think it's cool when players have moments that shine and they feel heroic about it. It's pretty cool. Um so other, play, other GMs kind of don't like that. but It sounds like your GM got a kick out of it. So kudos to you for finding that good group. And uh, I hope to hear continued recaps of the Ghosts of Saltmarsh.
0: That was Carl Rodriguez of the GMologist Presents. Uh, mostly referring to our my, my summary of our last uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics game and some, some details I glossed over or overlooked, including one that I got wrong that I... I did use luck to try to turn the creature but it wasn't enough. Uh, and it was a <laughs> fluke of a of a long shot on an opposed strength check between a very weak character and a very strong monster still went in in uh the favor of the character the player and um, he managed to raggle away. I thought I thought that we were TPK'd for sure on that one. It was a great encounter. Um and yeah, those are spooky creepy uh monsters and I'm going to have to remember to put some in my next, uh, under dark scenario that I, that I run as a DM. <laughs> um, so, uh, thanks again for the calls, Carl. I always good to hear from you. And, uh, yeah, uh, I know you were kidding about the, the paladin being OP. That's just, a uh, you know, he, he didn't get to do much that session. It really, he really did not outshine the other characters. It was just, he had that one moment where something really, really awesome happened. So, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you later.
2: Hey Jason, here. You, just a helpful hint: you you can re-record over things, and you don't have to use your first take. So, letting people know that magic is real and that that third eye really did appear on your forehead probably isn't safe. I know you tried to recover and said, "Oh no, no, it was on my PC's forehead," but it but it wasn't a very believable recovery. So. We, we we might have to get a list of your listeners and um, go around and erase the memories. Just just a thought.
0: Jason, Jason, Jason. You know that magic is not real. You know as well as I do that there is no secret cabal of men in black going around erasing people's memory because they know too much and they they they've cued into what's really going on. There is no such conspiracy. No such conspiracy at all. And I want all my listeners to listen very carefully to the sound of my voice. Magic is not real. There is no cabal of arcane lizard people secretly running society. Magic is not real. All is well. Go back and listen to the rest of the podcast as normal. I'm going to count backwards from five to one, and when I do, you will have forgotten Jason's suggestion that there is anything amiss in the world. Five, four,
1: three,
0: two, one. All right, well now that we've heard about Dungeon Crawl Classics from Carl, um, and uh, let's let's have a uh, let's hear from Daniel Norton about something else.
3: Hey BJ, Daniel from Bandits Keep calling in. Um, so I'm a little behind, so I think I'm two episodes behind maybe. And uh, you're talking about using Fantasy Grounds now with OSC, which is really cool. Yeah, I saw that announcement as well. I mean, I'm not a virtual tabletop person, but I think if I were to try to use one regularly, Fantasy Grounds seems like a really good option. Um, but it, the reason why I'm calling though <laughs> is because you're talking about the single saving throw which I also think is a really good mechanic. But it's interesting because if you think about saving throws from the, you know as I am, because I'm going back to playing OD&D, the, it doesn't make sense to do a single saving throw. <laughs> and the reason why I say that is because in OD&D, the, the saving throws, uh, or at least in Chainmail, we'll say, which is where they come from, the saving throws are really tied to the monsters, which then makes sense, right? You only make a turn-to-stone save if you're fighting against a Medusa, basically, because... Um, Medusa can turn you to stone. But I think as the game developed, more and more people were using them for other things. So you might use your like turn-to-stone saving throw to also avoid uh, falling in a pit for whatever reason. I mean, I don't know. I've seen modules do stuff like that. So then the saving throws became kind of like a uh, a mechanic for almost like luck, right? Avoiding things. and And they were somewhat tied to abilities, in a sense, you know, they, they're tied right to your level, I suppose, but, but in a sense, like, you think about, like, a, a poison death saving throw has more to do with, like, if you can withstand the poison, whereas, like, a turn to stone is more like you turn away fast enough, so maybe it's a reflex thing, which is then, of course, developed in the third edition, and then and now, in currently in fifth edition, they're all saving throws are based on ability scores, so I think it's super interesting, so I guess in short, I find saving throws interesting, but the single saving throw, I think, is an awesome mechanic if you consider saving throw essentially luck which I think is a really good way to look at it. And I think if I was going to have a saving throw in my game and I was going to make it a single one, I would just change the name to Luck because I feel like that's what a single one really
0: Hey, Daniel, um, I think you know, great points all around. I think it's interesting because I, I pulled the single saving throw mechanic that I'm using <laughs> right out of White Box Swords and Wizardry, uh, which is itself, other than a couple of tweaks, OD&D, Kind of, or at least it's based on od and I guess it's not a perfect retro clone of it, but um, the interesting thing I find was in the Swords and Wizardry white box. It it's a single target value regardless of what you are saving for, but it technically could be considered six saving throws because it suggests one option the DM might allow you to do is if you have exceptionally high or low ability scores to determine which ability is most relevant to the effect you are trying to resist or avoid. And apply that to your uh, to your role. So say uh, you know at first level a fighter's saving throw value is uh, 14, I believe. But if they've got a especially high constitution where they've got like a plus one for their you know constitution bonus, um, and they're trying to save you yeah, against poison, you would let them add that plus one. Um, versus, and if they're particularly clumsy for a fighter and have a, a penalty in terms of their you know effects of dexterity. And they're trying to dodge a wizard's lightning bolt. You might apply that negative one penalty to their role. so so that the target is static and it's uniform no matter the type of save. But your the the it may vary a bit if you allow the effects of those ability scores, which I think kind of presages. I guess it doesn't presage because Swords and Wizardry comes after. No, I think Swords and Wizardry came out before Fifth Edition. Um, I guess it does kind of presage where where things were going with. Um, just using your ability scores to make saving throws instead of having them be a separate mechanic. It's interesting. You can find it online pretty easily, a set of um, BX house rules that Mike Morales was using while they were developing 5th edition uh, and because uh, he and the design team played through every edition of the game to see what worked and didn't work about it. And he was using BX, except he had found a way to substitute. He, 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 had, he had, There was advantage and disadvantage when he explained what it was in the rules because... Um, not want to hear of it before, at least not in the context of D20 based D and D and, uh, and then a a way to use ability scores in lieu of saving throws. It was very interesting. Uh, you can find that pretty easily online. I mean, I intend to do a show on house rules at some point and include that. It was one of the things I talk about at different places I've seen interesting house rules, but, um, yeah, um, Saving throws are very interesting, and I do think, I agree with you, I think at this point people treat it more as, this is luck, this is the plot armor you get because you're a a protagonist in an unfolding story. It's that reason Indiana Jones finds that one vine he can grab on before he goes over the cliff to keep from falling to his death. It's, you know, how you duck at the right second, and, you know, the supporting characters get, fall in the pit, but you don't, or they get hit with a poison dart, and it just kind of, Sticks in the brim of your hat, those kinds of things. Uh, I think that's kind of what Saving throws have come to mean. And I think Gary Gygax even explained it that way once that when he was talking about AD&D. But I think if you look at Chainmail, you can see it's... I don't think that's where they started in Chainmail, but I think maybe that's what they came to represent at some point. Um. Anyway, thanks for the call, everybody. That was Daniel Norton of the Bandit's Keep. Uh, always great to hear your voice, Daniel.
1: Hey, BJ, awesome, awesome description of uh hero quest that's what the game is called right (laughs) sorry i just i just read an email from hero forge the mini company so now i'm confused (laughs) but dude so my question and i think you sort of answered it are those minis pre-painted it sounds like they're not and that ah, man i was all excited i was like I'm, i'm gonna buy this if it comes out 95 minis i'm getting it for sure but if they're not pre-painted, uh, you know, unfortunately, painting minis isn't isn't really in my
3: wheelhouse.
1: But anyway, dude, that was an awesome couple episodes. Thanks for that, and have a good one, man. Peace out.
0: Hey Joe, thanks for the call. Um, that is, um, yeah, the, the miniatures are not painted. Um, I think as I mentioned, they're they're molded in different colors of plastic, but they're solid colored, just so that you know the hero. Figures are are red, the the undead are white, the monstrous kind of humanoids like orcs are green, and then the boss monsters um, and kind of dark chaos, dread, magic themed ones are are gray. Um, So, no, they're not painted, but they are color coded somewhat for, for kind of if you look at them at a glance, you can tell what at least what category they belong to. And they all have kind of pretty distinctive shapes. So um, they, they, I think they just still stand out from each other pretty well, even if they're not painted with a lot of detail. Um, the uh, and I got ninety-five figures because I backed the the whole shebang. So I, I got the core HeroQuest board game plus the two expansion packs, plus a, a box of miniatures that were really uh, four backers as as, a, as bonus content. Um, if you get the core board game, which I think is going to be available for retail, if not by Christmas at least, supposedly by the end of the year maybe, um, although Christmas is only a few days from the end of the year, <laughs> I, I think that's going to retail for about $100, and it only has 35 minis plus the board and the cards and everything in it. So uh, it's got the four core heroes and then and then 31 monsters, and then... What bulked that up was the, the two expansion packs. Each have about... I think one has 17 and the other one has 18 miniatures in it. Yeah. Um, and then those ones that just... They kept tacking on for stretch stretch goals. Which I think three of them were exclusive. Because they're related to sort of non-player characters that show up. Just kind of in the the premise of... The, even it's a board game, there's kind of a theme and a story going on. Um, figures for those characters... That you don't need to play the game. They're just kind of cool figures to have. Uh, I think, I suspect most of the other ones that we got, the the alternate sculpts for the monsters and heroes, are probably going to show up again in further expansion packs. Uh, They've announced one went up for pre order, and (laughs) the lots they had for pre order were gone in like 20 minutes. Uh, for their first additional heroes, which is called a knight, and they're they're going to release that in December with a male and female alternate sculpts of of the of knight figure, which is um, kind of I guess could be kind of a stand-in for the barbarian as, as the the primary warrior of the group. But um, uh, and I think and then there's a there's an image where they a guy from Hasbro is being interviewed or given something, and you can see artwork for. One of the old expansion packs that they, they haven't done yet that they're like oh that's kind of cool and it's one that adds like winter themes like yetis and stuff and it came with a in the old days it came with a female barbarian um, figure so I, I the suspicion is the the one that we got in the as a stretch goal will will be in that expansion pack if they're following suit but who knows there's a lot of speculating going on and a lot of times speculation is turns out to be wrong. But yeah, so they're not painted um, and you're not going to, I don't think you're ever going to get the opportunity to get nearly a hundred minis from them (laughs) in a box the way we did for back in the, uh, the both tiers of the, the backers, the, the, it wasn't Kickstarter. It was, it was Hasbro Pulse, their own version of in-house Kickstarter, but, but yeah, you can still piece it together, you know, in the, in the coming year or so for the most part, um, you know, don't, don't let yourself get fleeced on eBay, (laughs) Anyway, I hope that helps, and uh, thanks
2: for the call, Joe. Hey, BJ Jason here. Yep, I would love to do an online game of HeroQuest with you. Actually, the one time I have played HeroQuest, because I owned it and never played it, the one time I did play it was online. Dave Aldrich over at the, you know, defunct D-Percentile podcast had hooked up with a gentleman in Canada who was had it all set up online, and we got online and played it one time. And I had a lot of fun during that one session, so I'd love to do that again. And yeah, so if you decide to do that, please let me know and include me in that. I would r- really enjoy it.
0: Oh, there you are, Jason. Uh, everybody, it's Jason Carnley from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. It was—I thought we were going to get through a whole show without hearing from him. Uh, yeah, Jason, we'll set that up sometime, um, and it'll be a lot of fun. Maybe, maybe, maybe we can do an an anchor. Maybe we can do an anchor special <laughs> of all the. Uh, all the anchor podcasters playing hero quest on online. Um, thanks for the call everybody. Um, again, that was Jason. I want to thank J- Jason Carnley of the nerds RPG variety cast. Uh, earlier we had calls from Carl Rodriguez of the gemologist presents Joe Richter of hindsightless and Daniel Norton of bandits keep as always. I appreciate you guys calls and I encourage everybody who's listening, go check out their content. They all have great podcasts and, uh, Daniel also has some good YouTube videos. So be sure and give them a give them a, a listen and or watch. All right. We're going to now move on to some unboxing. I'm going to unbox um this new game I got. It's the box set for Call of Cthulhu. I believe this is the newest, you know, 7th edition Call of Cthulhu. I think is the current and newest edition. I've actually never played in Call of Cthulhu or ran Call of Cthulhu. I've listened to some other people play live plays and uh, heard people talk about it <laughs> but I have never played it myself uh, and probably uh, what I found is when I get interested in a new game system the only way to ever get get things going with, with my group is to buy it and run it myself. Um, anyway, uh, so it's I got this uh I'm gonna a plug, which I'm sure will not mean anything to most of the people listening, because you don't probably don't live anywhere near where I I do. But I bought this today at um, Wizards Asylum in Norman, Oklahoma, and I have a long history with that particular uh, business. Although they probably don't know me from anybody, but (laughs) when I was a kid, I lived in a little town of less than 800 people in northeastern Oklahoma. Needless to say, we did not have a local comic book store or game shop. And the closest one was in Muskogee, and it was a place called Asylum Comics. And I remember going in there and picking up comics from time to time. Um, What I didn't know at the same time is is, is at some point the guy also opened up a store called the Wizard's Den, which was a game store. Uh, Not in Muskogee, but in Tulsa. Um, And at some point uh, when I was in high school... It might, might have been when I was in college. He he decided to just uh, merge the two together in one location. So he closed down the place in Muskogee, got a bigger place in Tulsa. The Wizards' Den and Asylum Comics became the Wizards' Asylum. And so um, uh, I continued to use that place after I'd finished school and moved back to the area for my comics and, and to buy Warhammer models and miniatures and. Uh, um, That was kind of my go-to place. So when I moved away from the Tulsa area about six years ago, I was kind of sad to leave that place behind. That was was my go-to place. Even though it was still about an hour hour away from where I lived, it was pretty easy to get to. Um, But now I'm an hour away from Norman, Oklahoma, give or take. A little more than an hour. Uh, And they have since opened up a second shop in Norman with all the same – All the same uh, types of content and the same, you know, they host games, magic tournaments, um, Pokemon tournaments, um, Adventurers League, other kinds of games, Warhammer. So uh, if you live in Oklahoma, be sure to check out, if you have never, if you're either in Tulsa or in Norman, check out uh, Wizards Asylum. If you uh, are passing through Oklahoma, either through the, the Norman area or through... Tulsa area be sure and check them out they're a great game store and it's getting harder and harder um I know for brick and mortar game stores to make a go of it unless they develop they have really good it's a good comfortable atmosphere with great staff and they kind of build a community of locals that come in and hang out and play games and I don't live close enough to be up there I probably would be up there four or five times a week but I know it's getting harder and harder for those shops, and and particularly in the, the you know I live in a pretty good sized place for Oklahoma. We've got a, a regional university here and, and a lot going on, so it's not like we're a, just a tiny little town like the one I grew up in. But we've struggled to to maintain um, comics and game shops. Uh, so really, you have to get into kind of a, a larger urban suburban area to uh, I think for there to be a big enough customer base to to support them. But they do provide such a great way of uh building community for, for gamers and um and uh you know I was able to go in and look at this and decide to buy it. And then it's a local store, it's not it's not Barnes Noble, not that I have anything too much against Barnes and Noble. I get stuff there too sometimes, but I always prefer the the local shop where I know that the people running it are nerds just like me. <laughs> So support your local game store whenever you can. I guess is the main thing. And I, I I I regret deeply that I do not have a local game store that I can just go to for everything that I get. As much of a, a collector and a, and a gamer as I am. Anyway, so uh, thanks a lot to to the folks at uh, Wizards Asylum in both Tulsa and Norman. Uh, now onto the box the box unboxing of Call of Cthulhu box set or the Call of Cthulhu starter set. So the cover, if you've never seen it, obviously you could Google this image, but I'll describe it anyway. Uh, the cover of the box is: uh, you've got three investigators. They are standing on the walkway to a some kind of gothic uh, mansion. There's some the pathway they're moving up is lined with tombstones, and they're back. They're kind of backing towards the house, uh, and it looks like there's these tentacles coming at them. So it, it's from the point of view of whatever is trying to get them. Uh, you got a guy with a looks like he's got a pistol. who may be a some kind of detective or or policeman. Somebody else who looks like a college professor. He's got a tome tucked under one arm, uh, and then a, a woman who may um, it's not real clear what her wouldn't guess what she's supposed to be. You know, there I know there are several roles you can play, but um, unlike D and D heroes, they are not charging forward Fe- f- f- with fear and rage. They are. Backing away with looks of shock and uh, trepidation. So, also you've got the um, pitch up on the roof of the of the, of the thing. You've got some uh, Cthulhu mythos creatures, winged, horrible looking things, and there's this eerie neon green light, you know, emanating from the windows and, and eaves of the houses. Which I think we've all we've come to a point now where neon or lime green energy is the um or, or light or a glow is sort of the universal color for dark magic and evil power uh, it seems to be a consistent thing across uh, artwork and fantasy genres whether it's standard fantasy or horror or superheroes or disney movies or <laughs> or or anything anything like that uh, that, that kind of Slimy green is the, the the color of evil. So, uh, this is a standard uh, you're kind of your nine by twelve box set box. It's only it's not it's not real thick. It's only about an inch thick. So if you put it up on the shelf, it would sit next to it probably maybe one of your typical D and D sized uh, rule books or or the Cthulhu books. They're they're about the same, you know, about the same game standard game book size. So I did see the Cthulhu stuff there, but I, I didn't want to. I wanted to get the starter set and just play around with it before I invested in a. First, I want to see it and see if I like it. And then, of course, also I want to play around with it. Um, and then I might sink some money into the main core books, books. I was going to run it for, for a bunch of people. All right, so I'm opening the box. What's in the box? You've got dice, which I'm assuming I will learn what these dice represent. Um... Uh, So this is a, you've got a standard, uh, pretty standard set of, well not a standard set of, there's no D12, but I've got a D4, a D6, a D8, a D10, a percentile die, and a D20. And then I've got a second percentile die. So these are all green except for this second percentile die is blue. So I'll have to learn what that's about, Uh, what's in the box. Now I'm hearing T.J. Dren's theme for Jason Connerly's podcast, What's in the Box? (laughs) Um, This box contains everything you need to play Call of Cthulhu. Inside, you'll find the following items. Book one, Alone Against the Flames, a solo introductory adventure which teaches you the basics of Call of Cthulhu as you play through a mystery. Hmm. I'll have to play through that. Maybe I'll record myself doing it and then post it as a solo play. I don't know. Book two, The Call of Cthulhu Starter Rules, everything you need to get started playing games of mystery and horror. Book three, Paper Chase and Other Adventures. Three starter scenarios to mystify, perplex, and scare. Um, Five uh, ready-made investigators, so basically five pre-gen characters. Um, Four blank sheets to create your own characters. The role-playing dice used in the game. So, that's interesting it's a set of six polyhedral dice used in the game but there are seven die as I said there's this odd blue d100 or percentile die of course it's just got the tens places on it um, and then player handouts a set of props ready to use props that accompany the adventures in book three alright cool um, and then there's a you know, pictures of all this stuff Huh, I got, look, I got, I don't like that. This picture shows a set of Cthulhu-specific kind of de- polyhedral dye that are green and have, look like they've been carved out of, um, actually, what's that stuff that the Deep Ones carve stuff out of? They kind of refer to this kind of green, marble soapy-looking stone that they they carve their artifacts out of. They kind of look like that. These are like chess x dice. Bummer. Oh, well, I'm sure I could obtain a set of these Cthulhu-style dice if I really want them <laughs> pretty easily. So, Read me first. The books in the starter set are designed to read in the order presented, so open book one first. You'll take part in a starter solo adventure against the, alone against the flames. Um. Then go on to book two, book three. When you re- feel ready, invite a friend or two to join you to play the game. Book three contains three adventures start with the first adventure paper chase. and players can create an investigator or use the pigeons but two the other adventures book through your devo design for two or more players so more of your friends can join you. okay so there. you're building your own little Cthulhu cult here. it starts with you and then you get one or two and then they get bring in one or two and before you know it you've got a whole whole game <laughs> The other side of this little it's, it's just a this is just a little glossy page. One page insert. It was on, on the top of everything else. A little flyer. Uh, the flip side says the K cha- is called the Chaosium. The Chaosium exists deep beneath the bottom of the lowest underworld. It is the fount of chaos and spews forth our collective unconscious, fantasies and monstrosities alike, into our world. Artists, believers, and gamers are all inspired by the restless dreams. The Chaosium speaks to us. So that's just an ad for the Chaosium games in general. We are all us. You must cut the dragon head off yourself, take it with your left hand and make it part of you. You must slay the dragon and wield its power. fluff yeah, my old one tongue is bad. <laughs> I know that's the the little chant that shows up time and time in lovecrafts um. Lovecraft's work. Chaosium, Chaosium lets us dream of dead gods and construct the universe out of its essential runes. It lets us travel along the lightbringer's quests to revive the murdered son or walk the non-Euclidean non-Euclidean pathways. <coughs> Are you guys done? Can I can I continue now? Yeah. Yeah, my dog's got upset about something outside the window. Hopefully it's not a great old one. Maybe it's just a shocker. Um, <laughs> the Chaosium lets us dream of dead gods and construct the universe out of its essential runes. It leaves us. It lets us travel along the Lightbringer's quest to revive the murdered sun or walk the non-Euclidean pathways of Rillier's R- 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 nightmare corpse city. Um, it is the mundane and gray world. The Chaosium brings your un tamed imagination to life. Through role-playing games, books, board and card games, comics, and more, guard yourself with the Elder Sign and fortify yourself with rune magic. I'm sure that's a shout-out to RuneQuest. Um, it's time to begin your adventures. That's so what this is just an ad for Chaosium in general. Okay, what do we got in here? Get these out of the quite a bit. Um see, book one, Alone Against the Flames. I've got a picture on the front. These, these look like a, covers of old pulp novels, of course. Um, these are also glossy. These are staple-bound. This one's 55 pages. Um, 56 if you count the back cover, I guess. Um, Book one, Alone Against the Flames. This is a solo adventure. Um, I won't read through all this, but it's a self-paced kind of kind of reminds me a little bit, slightly of the self-paced adventure in the old uh, uh, the old red box from D D. You know, they'd show you how to play by pacing you through a, a small dungeon. Um, and the the mincer red box. And uh, I think I like it when games do this. I like it when they give you an example of play um, or give you a tool to kind of help you immerse yourself in the, in the procedure. That, that's really cool. I know one, one idea is, hey, there's tons of examples of people playing role-playing games online. Go watch a video. And that's helpful too. Um, but when you're looking at a way you're trying to introduce somebody to a new game, something they've never done, or maybe they've role-played, but it's a, it's a different game than one they've ever played, I, I think it's kind of neat to have something like that. The introductory rules shows another set. I think it's supposed to be this. Yeah, it's the same set of adventure. Not not the ones on the front of the box. These, these look slightly different, although they could be the people, same people in different clothes. They it is a a man with a fedora and a gun, a woman, and then a a guy in a a suit, it looks like a tweed jacket. So they look slightly different, but it could just be people dressed differently. Um, they're running through the forest, being chased by some kind of horror. <laughs> and behind them, again, all screaming and running in terror. Uh, and so this is the just this is, this is probably just the introductory rules to uh, how to play the game. This would I guess stand in it for a if you, when you're just running through this box set, probably the the equivalent of a game master's guide. Book three, paper chase and other adventures. Let's see. Sorry, I, uh, the introductory rules. That was. 24 pages, and then this one is 80 pages. Um, This, this again, contains three more adventures. Uh, So, again, I'm not going to read through these. I never read through an adventure unless I'm going to run it, because who knows, before I get to it, somebody may want, want to run it, and I can play in it, so... Um, and then we've got some, as promised, some character sheets here. We've got, these are 1920s era investigators. Let's see, we've got Jesse Williams, a history student from Bo- from from Boston, but lives in Arkham. I think these people are probably all going to live in Arkham. <laughs> uh, you got the front, you know, sheet front and back. It's got the, uh, characteristics, their luck, their hit points. Sanity, uh, investigator skills, weapons, and on the back, just traits, um, just more description Their gear and possessions, cash and assets, and quick reference rules to um, to uh, ha- have the, the mechanics work. Um, I like this one. In the bottom, this is fellow investigators. You've got to pick me in the circle. And then it's surrounded by one, two, three, four, four eight more, up to eight more character and players. So you could very quickly, I guess, it make it easier to remember your fellow players' uh, names and their characters' names. All right, who else we got in here? Keiko Kane. Oh no, Carl, Carl Rodriguez. This is your this is your wife's character. Have you been? Is this the adventure you ran her through? Have I been? Have you spoiled me on the uh, one of these adventures by me listening to your game summaries? Uh this is a science student from San Francisco in Arkham. I think I think maybe it's just loosely based on this person because when Carl ran, ran I believe at that point, uh Amy playing Keiko, she was a uh, full-fledged psychiatrist. So she had she was not a science student. She had not only finished college but finished medical school and residency and was practicing as a psychiatrist. So um Here we have Lois Russo from Arkham, New York, an engineering student. (laughs) Nevada Jones, an archaeology professor. Um, Yeah, I wonder where they got that. He's even wearing a fedora and looks like he needs to shave. Wentworth Alvibury, a languages professor. So those are your... Pre-generated characters. They got some blank character sheets, as, as I mentioned. And then here we've got some of these props. We have got some handouts that look like, you know, there's a letter dear friends in the years of the after nightmares of, it, of that in my youth. So yeah, things you would expect in sort of pulp era investigation but, and in Cthulhu, um, you know, correspondence, notes, excerpts from someone's uh, diary. A new here's one that looks like a newspaper clipping. Um, you know, something from a file taken from looks like from the police department. So you know, things you things you might you know, physical props that would be clues during investigation. Uh, and then some maps of, of locations you might be investigating. Uh in the in the thing in the different adventures and then a map of Harlem, nineteen twenty five. I wonder if the uh I wonder if one of these adventures takes place in Harlem. Huh, cool. Um I did see on the shelf a uh call of Cthulhu supplement. It looked like it might have been I'm in Set in Harlem. I don't. I don't know. I didn't. I just kind of glanced at it. I, I went in and I didn't didn't thumb through all of them. I was running short on time when I noticed I had Call of Cthulhu stuff, and I just grabbed the box set because i did intending to to get it sooner or later. Anyway, this looks like it'll all be fun. I'll I'll be back with more details once I maybe I play through that solo adventure. Or like I said, maybe if I have time, I'll record it. If the dogs will be quiet. <laughs> all right, that's it for the unboxing. Okay, I want to thank you guys out there for listening. Um, appreciate it. that um, you made it this far. Uh, I want everybody out there to have a happy Thanksgiving this week. Uh, I got I think I've got a, a pre-recorded episode prepared. It'll drop uh, over the weekend uh, talking about elves, the uh, the history of elves as, as they're conceived of in D and d and how you might think about the the outlook and personality of role playing elves or the psychology of a typical D&D elf. So that should be coming out uh, this weekend for your uh, Thanksgiving listening pleasure as you try to uh, stay awake from all the tryptophan in your system after you gorge on turkey. (laughs) Anyway, uh, thanks again to all my callers, Jason, Joe, Carl, and Daniel. As as always, check out their content. um, And I'll be back. There is no such thing as magic. And that's it for this episode of The Arcane Alienist. I want to thank Dave Bone for the cover art that I use for the episodes. Check out ironseer.com. And the music is Come and Get It by Scott Holmes Music. Uh, Thank you for listening. Uh, Give me a call sometime through the Anchor app or at the Anchor website. And I'll be back in the future with another episode.